thank you, Neville, <clears throat> for that kind introduction. Good evening, everyone. It's really good to be with you. Uh, an honor and a pleasure. Uh, we, last week, we discussed chapters uh, 22 and 23 of 1 Samuel, and as Neville has just said, uh, this week we're going to think about the next three chapters, 24, 25, and with a feeling of inevitability, 26. If last week identified the problem, uh, then this week will reveal the solution. And the problem we identified last week is a very modern one. In chapter 22 of the book, we had to watch Saul destroy the entire priesthood. The ghastly figure called Doeg the Edomite slaughtered 85 priests in their white linen ephods, and uh, he killed their families, even the elderly, and infants. And we saw last week that Saul's command was even more wicked than the killing of innocent people, horrific though that is. He was deliberately destroying the priesthood. The priesthood, if you remember, uh, was designed to help people live within a sacred space, to be continuously aware of moral and spiritual realities. And Saul ripped all that away. Nothing was sacred anymore. <clears throat> Everything reduced to an instrument of power. Then chapter 23 showed us how that godless thinking pervaded and infected an entire society. We saw ordinary people become blind to moral virtues like truth and justice. They had no more awareness of those things than a lump of rock. Saul had created a society that operated entirely on power and self-interest. Everyone from the king to the lowliest servant viewed life through the same lens. They confronted every situation by asking, what's in it for me? Now, that's the really big problem which this ancient book tackles. Now, a child might read 1 Samuel and conclude that Saul was a bad king and David was a good king. So God got rid of the bad king and put a good king in place. A more grown-up analysis begins by admitting that God faces a huge problem. How does he transform people? How does he transform a society that is governed only by self-interest and power? How does he transform that into a community that values moral realities like truth, justice, and love? Uh, let me rephrase our problem in a Christian context. <clears throat> the Christian gospel offers everyone a chance to become part of an eternal kingdom, a society governed, as we sang, by King Jesus. But that offer makes very little sense to people who have been trained since birth to look at life through the lens of self-interest people who instinctively ask, what's in it for me? It's not going to be sufficient to say uh, that Jesus is a good king. The eyes of people need to be open to the moral beauty of the Christian worldview. They need to be persuaded that moral virtues like truth and justice and love are real and valuable things. I'm going to suggest that chapters 24, 25, and 26 explain the solution to that big problem. Before we survey that material, let's get underway by reading two short passages from the New Testament, and the first is found in Romans chapter 12. <clears throat> so if you have a Bible, uh, turn to Romans chapter 12, and we'll read 17 through 21. This is the Word of God. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, 
I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And then the second short reading from the New Testament is found in 1 Peter, Peter's first epistle, chapter 2, and we'll read 21 through 24. And the Apostle Peter says, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Now, those two readings introduce us to God's solution to the problem I was talking about just now. Those passages explain how God transforms a people that operate according to self-interest and power. The solution can be expressed negatively and positively. In its negative form, the answer is, do not take revenge. In its positive sense, the answer is, entrust yourself to God as judge. So there are two sides of the same coin. Do not take revenge and entrust yourself to God as judge. Now, that solution seems downright odd. It seems like an eccentric response to the problem of ingrained values like self-interest. But let me make the same plea that I made last week and ask you to allow the power of these ancient narratives to flow through your mind before you jump to any conclusion. Okay, so let's now turn to our passage and consider chapters 24, 25, and 26. I'm sure everyone in the room is familiar with the concept of a sandwich, Joey Tribbiani's favorite food. You take a piece of bread, you then add a filling like a slice of ham or cheese, and then you place a second piece of bread on top. I hope Helen's listening. It's a symmetrical arrangement with the filling in the middle, bracketed by two similar pieces of bread. Well, the three chapters we consider tonight form a sandwich. Uh, Chapters 24 and 26 are like the slices of bread, and chapter 25 is the central filling. So chapters 24 and 26, the outer bracketing chapters, both record an incident where David spares Saul's life. You will recall how David and his little band of followers are living like outlaws. They're being hounded, ruthlessly pursued by Saul and his armies all around the deserts and mountains around the Dead Sea in the south of Israel. And in both chapter 24 and in chapter 26, David has the opportunity to kill his enemy. But he chooses not to. On the surface, the stories are very similar. So similar that some critical scholars think that they are duplicate accounts of a single incident included by an incompetent scribe for no particular reason. In a little while, when we examine them, we'll see that there are some profound differences in the two accounts. But I want to begin with chapter 25, which forms the filling in our sandwich structure. And it is this central chapter that sets out the principle we read in our New Testament readings. Do not take revenge. Entrust yourself to God as judge. In chapter 25, we're going to listen to the voice of wisdom. And it's spoken by a woman's voice, as wisdom so often is. Once we have understood this central principle, then we'll learn from the previous chapter why we find it so difficult to accept the principle. And then in chapter 26, we'll see how the principle actually works. 
So that's the plan. Now, if my elaborate sandwich structure is valid, then the real core of this section is found in a speech by a woman called Abigail in chapter 25. We're going to read that speech in a moment, but first let me set the scene. David and his band of followers did a lot of good work in the south of Israel for ordinary citizens. They protected the farmers and the villagers in a region that was lawless. Uh, the Philistines acted a bit like the Vikings in, in medieval England. But there were also bands of Amalekites, uh, gangs of lawless thugs who raided farms and villages all around the Dead Sea. And David and his men, when they weren't fleeing from Saul, protected the people from these raiders. And there was one wealthy rancher called Nabal in the region. He was married to a beautiful and intelligent woman called Abigail. Abigail almost personifies the virtuous woman described in Proverbs 31. She was a decisive woman of substance who managed her household well. But there was one big difference between Abigail and the idealized portrait that we read in the last chapter of Proverbs. Abigail was married to a moral fool. Nabal's name literally means fool. Nabal was a drunk who enjoyed a life of luxury and ease. His own servants regarded him as wicked. And he showed uh, his moral folly in an interaction he had with David's men. David's men were hungry, nearly starving in fact, and they made the reasonable case uh, to Nabal's servants that they should be given some recompense for having guarded and protected uh, the farmlands from raiders for most of the previous year. The servants agreed, but Nabal scoffed at the idea. So we're going to pick up the story now at verse 10. <clears throat> First Samuel 25, verse 10, and we'll read through to 35. <coughs> Nabal answered David's servants, Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat I have slaughtered from my shearers and give it to men coming from who knows where? David's men turned around and went back. When they arrived, they reported every word. David said to his men, each of you strap on your sword. So they did. And David strapped his on as well. About 400 men went up with David while 200 stayed with the supplies. One of the servants told Abigail, Nabal's wife, David sent messengers from the wilderness to give our master his greetings, but he hurled insults at them. Yet these men were very good to us. They did not ill-treat us, and the whole time we were out in the fields near them, nothing was missing. Night and day they were a wall around us, the whole time we were herding our sheep near them. Now think it over and see what you can do, because disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. He's such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. Abigail acted quickly. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five seahs of roasted grain, a hundred cakes of raisin and 200 cakes of pressed figs and loaded them on donkeys. Then she told her servants, go on ahead, I'll follow you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. As she came riding her donkey into a mountain ravine, there were David and his men descending toward her, and she met them. David had just said, it's been useless, all my watching over this fellow's property in the wilderness so that nothing of his was missing. He has paid me back evil for good. May God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before David with her face to the ground. 
She fell at his feet and said, Pardon your servant, my Lord, and let me speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. Please pay no attention, my Lord, to that wicked man, Nabal. He's just like his name. His name means fool and folly goes with him. And as for me, your servant, I did not see the man my Lord sent. And now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord your God lives and as you live, since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, may your enemies and all who are intent on harming my Lord be like Nabal. And let this gift which your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the men who follow you. Please forgive your servant's presumption. The Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord because you fight the Lord's battles and no wrongdoing will be found in you as long as you live. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord of your God. But the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. When the Lord has fulfilled for my Lord every good thing promised concerning him and has appointed him ruler over Israel, my Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself. And when, your Lord, when the Lord your God has brought my Lord success, remember your servant. And we'll stop there. David doesn't come out of the story very well. And to be fair to him, he responds to, uh, if we had read on, uh, you'll see he responds to Abigail's moral reasoning in a spiritual way. But his initial lust for revenge was an ugly thing. Now, we shouldn't be too critical of him, because that thirst for revenge is something I believe we have all felt. Let's just pause for a moment of self-reflection. Perhaps someone has hurt you deeply. A friendship has been betrayed. Or you were subjected to unfair humiliation in the workplace. Worse, a marriage bond might have been broken. Or your life blighted by a cruel parent. These terrible hurts lie deep in our hearts. And they often evoke a desire for revenge. We can be overcome by the sheer injustice of a situation. Unable to get justice in the real world, we can turn inward and start to fantasize, to find solace in dreams of vindication and vengeance. The desire for vengeance is one of the deepest emotions we can experience. And perhaps that's because it stems from a valid desire for justice. A moral debt has been incurred, and we want the guilty party to pay it. Anyone who steps into the role of Christian counselor in these sorts of situations needs to be really careful. Enormous psychological damage can be caused by pious Christians who advise a hurt individual to just smile and forgive, even in the absence of repentance. Many years ago, I found myself in a, at a social function in a different country from this one. The story involves people no one in this fellowship has ever met. And I fell into conversation with a middle-aged woman uh, who shook her head in momentary disgust when she discovered that I was a churchgoer. The woman was the mother of a number of teenage children. Her husband had left her to go and live with another man, leaving her in financial ruins. At the time, this woman was a member of a church. Her pastor had told her uh, to forgive her husband and move on. I wonder what you think about that piece of advice. 
if you think that's what I'm advocating in this talk, then I have done a terrible job of explaining myself. Yes, the Bible tells us not to seek revenge ourselves. But did you notice in that quote from Romans, Paul tells us to leave space for God's wrath. One Peter reminded us that Christ, though he did not revile when he was reviled, he did entrust himself to him who judges justly. So the Bible never says that vengeance is bad. It says that vengeance is God's job. I will repay, says the Lord. Vengeance is mine. <clears throat> it is downright wrong to counsel people to ignore the demands of justice. Whenever a moral debt is incurred, it must be paid. And the Bible's point is that we should leave the business of vengeance up to God. I said earlier that Abigail's speech in chapter 25 is the voice of wisdom. And the heart of her moral argument is, comes in verse 31. My Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself. Now, why would David's actions have been so wrong? Well, because he would have acted like Saul. Anyone watching would have said, there you go, as they saw Nabal's house burned to the ground. That's how life really works. There's nothing in this old world but power. <coughs> Abigail was a spiritual woman who knew there was more to this world than the power of the sword. She saw in David someone who would establish a lasting dynasty, a ruler who would not govern purely by power. And if you want evidence of the woman's cleverness, at her, of her intellect, uh, look at verse 29. She says, the lives of your enemies God will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. <laughs> She's reminding David, of course, of his victory over Goliath when he said to that great giant, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. You see, if David had gone ahead with his act of vengeance, that great speech would have been forgotten. The idea of a God who sits quietly behind history would have lost all credibility. But now let me put that argument positively. By leaving vengeance to the Lord, David was making space for God's wrath. In other words, he was reopening the sacred space we talked about last week. Instead of framing every conflict in terms of a dog-eat-dog -dog power struggle, David was opening up everyone's eyes to the unseen world of moral realities, a world in which truth and justice and love are real things. But his restraint, restraint did something else. In the language of Romans, he opened up that space for God's wrath to be displayed. And the end of the story is grim if we had taken time to read it. Abigail returns home to find her full of a husband drunk. And the next morning when she tells him that she, all that she has done, he takes a stroke. Scripture says that for ten, ten days he lay like a stone. And then he died. Now think what that divine act of judgment did for Nabal's household. Their master had lived life like a lump of rock, utterly unaware of moral and spiritual realities. And so he ended up like a stone, deaf and blind and dumb to the real world. What a warning to a household, to a society that lives for power and self-interest. It's a warning for us too, isn't it? We live in a society that is as dead to moral realities as a lump of rock. And one day, God's wrath will allow a culture like that to arrive at its logical conclusion. The Bible contains different pictures of hell. We can quickly dismiss the pictures that emerge from the diseased imagination of the medieval poet called Dante. 
The scriptural picture which frightens me most is found in a little book called Jude. And Jude talks of clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. He says, they are the wild waves of the sea foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. And it is that last picture, the picture of a burned out star, a lump of rock, wandering through the darkness of space that sends a chill down my spine. Because it is the logical destination of anyone who dismisses all talk of truth and justice and love. If we insist on being free from God's moral qualities, then we will in the end be granted the freedom to be utterly impervious to him, impervious as a lump of rock floating through space. Everything truly human will have been lost. It is the destination of Nabal, the end of the story for every moral fool. So we've thought about this great central principle. Do not take revenge. Entrust yourself to God as judge. Now, that was the filling in our structural sandwich. So let's now quickly, and I will be quick, think about the two pieces of bread, or chapters 24 and 26, to give them their more traditional titles. So both these stories recount an incident when David spares Saul's life. In both stories, Saul finds himself in a vulnerable position. I say that in all delicacy. In chapter 24, he goes to the toilet in a cave, unaware that David and his men are hiding in the back of the cave. Well, there's vulnerability. Then in chapter 26, Paul is a, a Saul is asleep in his camp when David, like a special forces soldier, creeps into the camp and steals his spear. So there are similarities in the stories, but there's also some big differences. In the first story, it looks as if God has put Saul in David's hands. An atheist might interpret it as a happy accident, a moment of serendipity. But in the second of the stories, David quite deliberately takes the initiative. But by far the biggest difference between the two stories is in the main audience for David's speech. In chapter 24, David has a fierce argument with his own followers. The language used in the original Hebrew is very strong. But in chapter 26, David is mostly interested in the followers of Saul, not his own followers. So in the first story, he's dealing with his own people. In the second, he talks to his opponents. So I'm going to suggest that in chapter 24, we learn why the principle of non-retaliation is so difficult for us to implement. And then in chapter 26, we will see how the principle actually works. It's not just pious guff, it's genuinely effective. So let's just read a few verses from chapter 24. We'll read the first seven verses of that chapter. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheepfolds along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterwards, David was conscience stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. 
and we'll stop there. The bit of the story I want to focus on uh, is the fierce, whispered argument between David and his own men. David's soldiers could make no sense of their leader's refusal to kill Saul. It just seemed like a weak, mad strategy. Their way of viewing the world ran so deep that they even cloaked their language and their, their, their um, argument in religious language. God has given Saul into your hands, David. It's just so obvious. If ever anyone wanted evidence of divine providence, this is it. Well, the lesson here, Christian, is that we need to be very careful about seeing God's hand in our affairs. Very often, we can look at a situation with a worldly-minded mindset and then cloak our desires in religious talk about divine guidance. David was guided instead by the revealed character of God. He knew how wrong it would be for him to take vengeance himself. In verse 12, he says to Saul, may the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. That is Romans 12 in action. David is making space for God's wrath in this situation, but his approach makes no sense to his soldiers. And I think we can all empathize with David here. The desire to seek vengeance ourselves runs very deep. David had to have this fierce argument with them to get them to back down. But as we read at the start, the Christian is presented with a much more powerful argument than anything David could give. Peter, perhaps more than any apostle, felt the burning desire to seek vengeance himself. But as an older man, he writes to us about the cross of Christ. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. The apostle specifically tells us that one of the reasons Christ died on the cross was to give us an example to follow. There is something about the cross of Christ that can calm the vengeful spirit within us. It runs deeper than mere argument. As we watch the Savior's silent nobility in the face of his accusers, we catch a glimpse of all that is morally beautiful and noble and true. In contrast to the religious rulers, their faces twisted in envy and hatred, Christ displays quiet dignity and strength. Watch him in Pilate's judgment hall. Follow him through the streets of Jerusalem to Golgotha, Golgotha and see meekness and majesty. As we will sing in our final hymn, wisdom unsearchable, God the invisible, love indestructible in frailty appears. With all the tenderness I can muster, let me address those hearts in the room who carry terrible hurt though to those who have been betrayed or mistreated. I, I quote a, an opening line of an old hymn from my childhood. There is a balm in Gilead to make the wounded whole. The cross of Christ is like a healing balm that soothes the pain and the churned up anger in a believer's heart. God will vindicate you, my brother, my sister. If it's important, he will do it in this life. But if not then, he will vindicate you on the final day. And so you, like the Savior, can entrust yourself to him who judges justly. In the meantime, you can square your shoulders and stand beside Christ himself.
Walk his path. Walk as he did. For he is your example. The final story in our trilogy is found in chapter 26. Once again, we encounter a story in which David spares Saul's life. But on this occasion, David is using non-retaliation as a deliberate tactic. And his main focus of attention is on Saul's followers, in particular on Saul's general, the man called Abner. I don't have much time left, so I only want to say a few words about this story. We're just going to read a few verses, starting at verse 12. So Samuel, 1 Samuel 26, starting at verse 12. So David took the spear and water jug near Saul's head, and they left. No one saw or knew about it, nor did anyone wake up. They were all sleeping because the Lord had put them into a deep sleep. Then David crossed over to the other side and stood on the top of the hill some distance away. There was a wide space between them. He called out to the army and to Abner, son of Nair, Aren't you going to answer me, Abner? Abner replied, Who are you who calls to the king? David said, You're a man, aren't you? And who is like you in Israel? Why didn't you guard your lord the king? Someone came to destroy your lord the king. What you have done is not good. As surely as the Lord lives, you and your men must die because you didn't guard your master, the Lord's anointed. Look around you. Where are the king's spear and water jug that were near his head? Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is that your voice, David, my son? David replied, Yes, it is, my lord the king. And he added, Why is my lord pursuing his servant? What have I done? And what wrong am I guilty of? Now let my lord the king listen to his servant's words. If the Lord has incited you against me, then may he accept an offering. If, however, people have done it, may they be cursed before the Lord. They have driven me away today from my share in the Lord's inheritance and have said, go, serve other gods. A cynic listening to this talk might think, well, <clears throat> all this talk about non-retaliation sounds tremendously pious, but it's completely unrealistic. What good would a strategy like that ever do? Well, if I was to mount a feeble defense against that charge, I would first say that the principle here relates to our personal interactions with people. I'm most certainly not advocating the principle of non-retaliation as a political principle. I think the UK is right to support the Ukrainians, for example, uh, in their fight against Russia. If you read on in Romans, just past the section I quoted at the start, you'll find Paul saying quite clearly that the state bears not the sword in vain. So this principle I've been discussing applies at the level of our individual relationships with other people. But even in that space, is it just pious guff, or might the strategy be genuinely effective? At first sight, the answer to that question is no. David deliberately disarmed Saul by removing his spear. Saul did love that spear. It was a psychological crutch for a paranoid man. David had risked his life to give his opponent one last chance to overcome his paranoia. But glance at the opening verses of the next chapter, and you'll see that Saul was incapable of change. He had so destroyed his personality that he was incapable of genuine repentance. So David's strategy of not seeking vengeance looks like a failure. Saul will go on to hold a seance with a witch, and then he will commit suicide. He had indeed played the fool. He had erred exceedingly. But we might notice a curious feature about chapter 26. Most of David's words, it seems to me, are aimed not at Saul, but at Saul's advisors and generals. In particular, David makes arguments that are directed at Abner, Saul's top general. Reading between the lines a bit, it seems to me that Abner had been jealous of Saul and had maybe wound Saul up quite a bit. 
But David's noble restraint, his refusal to lay a finger on Saul, had an effect. If you read on in the story in 2 Samuel, you'll discover that peace comes to Israel. After this terrible period of Saul's reign with all its conflict, peace comes to Israel. When? When David and Abner make a treaty together. Abner seems to become more and more noble-minded. He makes, starts to make wise decisions. He shows great restraint until he is treacherously murdered by David's own general, Joab. So I wonder if David's refusal to seek vengeance, his making room for God's wrath, had a profound impact on his opponent, Abner. And when you think about it, that's the only way a conflict can ever be resolved. Both parties in a fight need to be noble-minded if a genuine peace is to be achieved. So the real task of a believer in Jesus Christ is to model what the Apostle James calls wisdom from heaven. He says that the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. He says peacemakers will sow in peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. Now this point is of particular importance when dealing with conflict in the church. One of the main reasons why each of us should model the behaviors James talks about is that by so doing, we are encouraging our opponents to think spiritually about the conflict. The best way to love your enemy is to model a Christ-like refusal to seek vengeance because that's the best way to get your enemy to think in a Christ-like way. And it's only when both parties are thinking spiritually that genuine reconciliation can be achieved. It's also the foundation stone for our approach to evangelism in the type of society in which we live. Read through First Peter if you don't believe me. So I was delighted by the U.S. Supreme Court's decision to jettison the false claim that abortion is a constitutional right. But I was equally dismayed by some triumphalist reactions from what we might call the Christian right. You see, when we forget to be gentle and courteous, we feed the false narrative that the Christian church is just one more power player in a political struggle. We reinforce the idea that life is about self-interest and the manipulation of power. That's why in America, the term Christian fascist is becoming ever more popular. If we are ever to evangelize the progressive left, we need to treat the members of that group the way David treated Abner, by modeling pure, considerate, and merciful behavior. We might persuade at least some of our opponents to see that there is more to life than power and self-interest. So we're done. Thank you for your patience. God's solution to transform a society governed by power and self-interest is seen most clearly at the cross. Do not take revenge. Entrust yourself to God as judge. Model that attitude, and eventually your opponents will begin to see the moral realities of truth, justice, and love. And once they've been persuaded that life isn't just a power struggle, reconciliation becomes possible. I'll hand back to Neville.